0: Welcome to Heightened Scrutiny, a podcast about the Supreme Court and civil rights. I'm Joe Dunman. Without a doubt, the United States has a tragic history of racial discrimination. From the slave trade, to Jim Crow, to the war on drugs, to mass incarceration, racial bias and hatred has been present at every point in American history. This presence regularly manifests itself in the conduct of private individuals. Racist speech and expression is still used today to intimidate, insult, and offend others. And racist speech causes harm. It hurts feelings, alienates people, and reinforces white supremacy in American social and political life. But does the government have any power to stop this? Can state and local officials single out racist speech and expression for punishment without violating the First Amendment? This is RAV versus the City of St. Paul, the hate speech case. In June of 1990, a group of teenagers built a cross out of chair legs and set it on fire in the front yard of an African American family in St. Paul, Minnesota. One of the teenagers was arrested and charged under a St. Paul City ordinance that banned burning crosses and other symbols which the perpetrator knew or had grounds to know would arouse anger, alarm, or resentment in others on the basis of race, color, creed, religion, or gender. That teenager, known as RAV in court filings because he was a juvenile, argued that the ordinance went too far and prohibited expressive conduct that was protected by the First Amendment. RAV believed the ordinance was overbroad and also that it inappropriately singled out certain speech based on its content. The Minnesota Supreme Court rejected his arguments. It said the ordinance was not overbroad because it applied only to fighting words and that its content-based prohibition was justified by a compelling government purpose to prevent bias-motivated threats to public safety. Undaunted, RAV sought review by the U.S. Supreme Court. On December 4, 1991, the Supreme Court heard oral argument in the case of R.A.V. v. City of St. Paul. Chief Justice William Rehnquist presiding. We'll hear argument now in number ninety seventy-six seventy-five, R.A.V. v. St. Paul, Minnesota. In order to understand the arguments in this case, we first need to review some constitutional background. First, for the purposes of the First Amendment, the use of symbolic objects can be a form of speech. The amendment covers not just spoken or written words, but also some forms of expressive conduct. Second, even though the text of the First Amendment doesn't include any exceptions to free speech, the Supreme Court has long held that there are several, certain types of speech that are so bad by their nature that they are not entitled to constitutional protection. In the case of Chaplinsky v. New Hampshire in 1942, the Supreme Court ruled that so-called fighting words could be banned. In that case, a Jehovah's Witness was demonstrating against organized religion in downtown Rochester. A confrontation broke out between Chaplinsky and a hostile audience. Though what exactly happened is subject to historical debate, Chaplinsky was arrested and charged with offensive conduct under New Hampshire law after he verbally insulted a police officer. The court concluded that words which by their personally hostile, insulting nature alone could spark a fight between individuals or create an immediate breach of the peace fell outside the First Amendment and thus could be restricted. In the 1969 case of Brandenburg v. Ohio, the court had ruled that the government could also punish advocacy that, quote, is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action. So with those two big cases in mind, the Supreme Court had to determine if the St. Paul Ordinance restricted a similar kind of hostile or dangerous expression that fell outside the First Amendment or if it went too far. First up to argue was RAV's attorney Edward Cleary. At the start of his argument, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor noted that the Minnesota Supreme Court interpreted the St. Paul Ordinance to apply only to fighting words. So, Justice O'Connor asked, would the Chaplinsky case have to be overruled in order for RAV to win? Cleary said no, but he was in a tough spot. The law at issue was a city ordinance, and state Supreme Courts get the final say on how state and municipal legislation is interpreted. Generally, the federal Supreme Court must give deference to a state Supreme Court's interpretation of the underlying meaning of its own law. The Minnesota Supreme Court had interpreted the St. Paul Ordinance to only apply to fighting words and not to any other kind of speech, so the U.S. Supreme Court had to defer to that interpretation. But there was a little wiggle room. Even if the city ordinance did apply only to fighting words, it could still be argued that it had to apply to all fighting words, not just certain fighting words deemed unacceptable based on their specific content. The U.S. Supreme Court had long held that government must treat speech neutrally. It cannot pick favorites, and only with the greatest of justifications can it regulate certain kinds of speech based on its content or its viewpoint alone. This neutrality doctrine could be used against the ordinance. At one point, Cleary got a little tied up in a question by Justice Anthony Kennedy about the government's power to ensure public safety, so Chief Justice William Rehnquist helped him out by turning the court's attention to this question of neutrality. Mr. Cleary, isn't one of your complaints that the Minnesota statute, as construed
1: by the Supreme Court of Minnesota, uh, punishes only some fighting words and not others?
2: Uh... It is, Your Honor. That is one of my positions, that, that in doing so, uh, even though it is a subcategory uh, technically of unprotected conduct, it still uh, is picking out a, uh, an opinion, a disfavored message, and making that uh, uh, clear through the state. It's a paternalistic idea, and the problem that we have is that uh, the government must not betray neutrality, and I believe it does, even when it picks out a subcategory. With the First Amendment, it does not necessarily follow that if you punish the greater, you can punish the lesser. Uh, If we had a law that banned the posting of uh, signs, for instance, somewhat akin to Vincent, and if we had in there, including but not limited to, signs uh, regarding the Democratic Party symbols, now that might be a mere example, and it might be a subcategory, but I believe this court would be offended by that. I believe the court would feel that that was betraying sympathy or hostility to a political viewpoint. And I believe the same principle is in in course here, because I think the problem we have is that we have, regardless of whether those symbols are mere examples, we have the possibility, the real possibility, that we
0: have a government signaling its disagreement. Cleary then elaborated, even if the hate speech ordinance was well-meaning, it simply went too far, stepping on individual liberties at great risk of abuse by law enforcement. The debate
2: in this case is not about the wisdom of eradicating intolerance. The debate is about the method of reaching that goal. I believe that the city council officials in this case and in other communities are very well-meaning, uh, and that's usually the case. But the problem is that I believe the, the, these type of laws cross the line from the 14th Amendment duty of the state to not participate in any racist state action or any intolerant state action in that sense with the First Amendment right of self-expression, even if it be intolerant, provided it does not cross the line uh, of illegal conduct itself. I believe the danger in a law like this is that it does pick out viewpoints, that it is viewpoint discriminatory, and that there's nothing to stop another state from taking a law just like this, having a different symbol, such as, uh, and I've used this example in the briefs of Star of David, and suggesting that you can narrowly construe that to fighting words, and leaving that open to the law enforcement officials.
0: But still standing in Cleary's way, at least to some extent, was the Chaplinsky case. The law at issue in Chaplinsky, similar to the St. Paul ordinance at issue in RAV, prohibited quote, offensive, derisive, or annoying words, and quote, offensive or derisive name-calling aimed at another person in public. Justice Frank Murphy, writing for a unanimous court, upheld Chaplinsky's arrest and the New Hampshire law, writing that insulting language and fighting words could be prohibited because such words, quote, by their very utterance, inflict injury and tend to incite an immediate breach of the peace. As Justice Murphy explained, quote, "...such utterances are no essential part of any exposition of ideas, and are of such slight social value as a step to truth that any benefit that may be derived from them is clearly outweighed by the social interest in order and morality." Well, there was at least a plausible argument that racist and sexist speech also has little social value, and also tends to incite an immediate breach of the peace. If RAV were to win this case, wouldn't the court have to overrule Chaplinsky? Justices Harry Blackman and Anthony Kennedy explored this possibility and asked Cleary how he could distinguish the case. What's the difference between Chaplinsky and RAV? Is racist speech less likely to cause injury and immediate breach of the peace? Mr. Cleary, do you you think that Chaplinsky was wrongly decided?
2: No, Your Honor, I'm not suggesting Chaplinsky has to be overruled. I believe the immediate breach of peace language uh, is still active. I believe there's been a lot of confusion over the uh, injury language.
3: Of course, it was written on behalf of the court by one of the great liberals of the country. Uh, uh, It always amused me that Chief Justice Stone assigned it to Frank Murphy uh, to write. But you you feel it can still stand as
2: good law? I don't believe that it has to be overruled to reverse this decision, Your Honor, because I think the inflict injury and the the Brandenburg misconstruction is more important in terms of this opinion. But but I
4: I thought your answer to me was that uh, an immediate breach of the peace is not required.
2: No, I didn't mean to suggest that, Your Honor. I don't mean to suggest Szaplinski is no longer good law in terms of the immediate breach of peace standard.
4: What, what, what is the, the constitutional test that, that you propose for the, those fighting words, whatever that means, which can be proscribed?
2: If the court uh, the court has spent 50 years uh, redefining the, the lines of Szaplinski... Uh, The immediate breach of peace language, as as I understand it, is the only language that has really been construed because that's what New Hampshire construed. I believe the reflexive violence theory of it uh, perhaps is not as strong now as it was 50 years ago. But at the same time, I I think that the court need not overrule that type of thinking to get to uh, this opinion and this decision.
4: Well, well, is the theory that the hearer will commit violence on the speaker?
2: I think the theory of... uh, Shaplinsky is a hostile audience idea, as opposed to... And is that the
4: theory the state proceeds on here, so far as you understand the case?
2: Yes, I believe so. But I believe the state uh, the state is, is, and,
4: and, and is... And is that theory constitutional, so far as applied to this statute?
2: Um, it's, it's constitutional in the sense that immediate breach of peace is still good law under Szaplinsky, yes. But it's my position that the balance of the language in the opinion... Uh, leads to a vagueness which, under Colander, is much more serious in terms of selective and discriminatory law enforcement. All right. Could could this conduct
4: be punished by a narrowly drawn statute that proscribes threats that cause violence? Could that state a cause of action against your client?
2: I believe Um, it could. I believe it could. I believe, uh, I've never argued that, again, that the conduct alleged in this case could not be addressed by viewpoint-neutral law. But this type of a law uh, leaves open the possibility for viewpoint discrimination, and it opens up, again, uh,
0: the selective enforcement idea. Cleary made an important concession, under a different ordinance, one more like the New Hampshire law in Chaplinsky that prohibited all fighting words, not just racist fighting words, RIV likely could be constitutionally convicted. But the St. Paul Ordinance attacked a specific kind of fighting words, which indicated that the government was cracking down on a specific unpopular topic or viewpoint. But Justice Scalia was not necessarily comfortable just relying on Chaplinsky. Sure, fighting words may not be protected by the First Amendment, and therefore they can be punished, but when do hostile words become fighting words? Does it depend on the reaction of the listener? Does violence have to actually occur, or at least there be an imminent possibility of violence? What about a listener who refuses, out of principle, to respond violently to even the most hostile of fighting words? Can the government provide no protection to pacifists? And further, can the government not determine that some language, by its very nature, regardless of the actual reaction of listeners, is simply beyond the pale? You think there
1: can't be
3: fighting words per se? The symbols themselves? There's no such thing as a fighting word per se. You always have to look, I mean, this is going back to our, our prior discussion. You, you I don't think, think you, you have to look at the particular group.
2: I agree. I, I don't think the fighting words per se would, would ever uh, work. I, mm-hmm. I think that that would really involve a censoring of expression. and, so uh, and that would no, the,
3: the, the Quakers have no protection. Or, or, or the, the, the peaceful well, family that, that, that would not you know, punch out someone who, uh, who waved a, a swastika in their face. That's, that's their misfortune, that they are so uh, law-abiding as, as not to be violent. And therefore, uh, what would otherwise be fighting words can be used against them.
2: I think the, the, the tension, Justice Scalia, is between the First Amendment right of expression and the...
3: Uh, well, I know that's the, that's the tension, but why is it that there can't be a, such a thing as a fighting word per se? A kind of a word that, uh, that would be likely to provoke a, re- a violent reaction from an ordinary person. Whether this person or this crowd in particular would be violent, it doesn't matter.
2: I think the danger in that is it could lead to a total ban Uh, of language, or of symbols, or of other expression that any
0: community uh, would call fighting words per se." Cleary made an excellent point. If the government can declare certain words to be fighting words per se, what would be the limit? Sure, we may all agree that racist speech is per se out of bounds, but what if the government goes farther? Chief Justice William Rehnquist then responded to Justice Scalia with Scalia's own words. Wasn't there a case just recently handed down by the Supreme Court along these same lines?
1: Certainly the court's opinion in Texas against Johnson suggested that there couldn't be a a
2: fighting symbol, at any rate, per se, did it not? uh, That's correct, Chief Justice. I think that the the court's holding in Texas versus Johnson uh, supports the petitioner's position in this case, and I also would point out that I do not think that the dissents are necessarily inconsistent with the petitioner's position on this law. I would say that is particularly true because of the fact that this court put a great emphasis on the unique nature of the American play. In doing so, I believe, acknowledged the Stromberg, red flag of the 30s, the black armband in the 60s of a Tinker, and was mindful of the fact that once that door is opened, uh, that it could lead to a ban of symbolic behavior in such a fashion uh, that a great deal of expression would be prohibited.
0: If you've listened to Episode 2 of this podcast, you will recall that Justice Scalia wrote the majority opinion in Texas v. Johnson, Striking Down State Laws Prohibiting Flag Burning. Even the American flag did not pose enough risk to public safety to justify a blanket ban on its burning. Cleary wraps up his argument by noting that direct personal threats can be prohibited under the First Amendment, and that his client's actions could be construed as such a threat, but the specific ordinance at issue here only singled out certain kinds of threats, and thus lacked the neutrality the government is obligated to maintain under the First Amendment. Next up to the lectern was Tom Foley, attorney representing the city of St. Paul. Before Foley could defend the St. Paul Ordinance, though, he had to field a series of questions from Justice Harry Blackman, who just so happened to be a native of St. Paul himself. First, Blackman asked why Foley was even before the court. Foley was the county's attorney, not the city's, and the ordinance in question was a city ordinance. Well, Foley said, under state law, the county handles all juvenile cases, and RAV was a juvenile. Okay, said Blackman, but one more thing. Let me ask one other trivial question. Uh... The cross burning took place on Earl Street, didn't
3: it? Yes, it did. Whereabouts on Earl Street? That's a long street, runs from Mounds Park to Phelan Park.
5: To... <clears throat> 290, no, 290 about... Earl Street. Hmm? 290 Earl Street. I know that, but where is 290? Oh. What's the cross street? I don't have the cross street, Justice Um <laughs> is, is, it, is it near Mounds Park or it is, is near it near Phelan Park? It's, it's near Mounds Park.
3: Um... I was up there last June with some U.S. Marshals who had never been there. And uh, because I think it's one of the most beautiful views in the city of St. Paul. But the grass was so high you couldn't see the view. Have your
5: maintenance man cut the grass next <laughs> to Justice, under our Constitution, everyone is presumed innocent until they've had a trial.
3: So. <clears throat> Mr. Paul, are you going to make all these concessions?
0: You might as well sit down now. And- All kidding aside, Foley still had a tough job ahead of him. It was his job to defend the St. Paul Ordinance, which, if his opponent was correct, violated the First Amendment. Not so, said Foley, but Justice Sandra Day O'Connor didn't let him get far before chiming in.
5: And unless this court is willing to abandon its holdings in Chaplinsky and Brandenburg, holdings that it has upheld for the last 50 years, this ordinance must be upheld. On this oral argument, I'm going to touch on four propositions. First is the purpose of the ordinance. Second, that the ordinance has been narrowly construed by the Minnesota Supreme Court only to apply to fighting words. Third, that the ordinance as construed is not overbroad or vague. And fourth, that the ordinance does not interfere with legitimate First Amendment rights.
6: Well, Mr. Foley, would you address the concern expressed by your opponent Um that the ordinance is limited to only uh, fighting words that arouse anger, alarm, or resentment on the basis of race, color, creed, or religion uh, or gender uh, and not other fighting words that could cause cause the same reaction in people. Uh, The argument is that the the statute is under-inclusive.
5: Your Honor, it's it's our position that the statute is not under-inclusive, that this is a fighting words case, that this is unprotected conduct under the First Amendment, and that the city uh, of St. Paul has the right to determine which harms it can prescribe within the limits of its jurisdiction. Well, certainly
6: it is limited by subject matter or content of the fighting words that are spoken, is it not? In that sense, it is a content-based ordinance.
5: Your Honor, it's, it's our position that it is, it is uh, not a content-based ordinance, that it uh, certainly uh, could be viewed to be a content-neutral ordinance.
6: Well, but it doesn't cover fighting words that are not limited to words on the basis of race, color, creed, religion, or gender.
5: That's correct, Your Honor.
6: So why, I mean, how can you possibly say it isn't content-based? To that extent,
5: Your Honor, we have alternative theories that it, that it is content based, uh, but it is unprotected conduct because it is fighting words. But we also believe that uh, the main purpose of the ordinance is not to limit the freedom of expression, and that the harm that it is attempting to regulate uh, is, uh, is neutral, and it could be uh, considered content neutral under the, uh, the Renton Barnes analysis that uh, this court uh, has engaged in. But even if the court feels that it is uh, content-based, that there is a compelling state purpose uh, in in public safety and order and uh, safety of their citizens for the city of St. Paul to pass such an ordinance.
0: So, in Foley's view, even if the ordinance was found to be a content review point based restriction on speech, the interest of the city of St. Paul in preventing breaches of the peace and protecting the safety of its residents was compelling enough to justify the ordinance. The First Amendment is not so strong that it can never be infringed. The government does have power to curb speech, but the Supreme Court applies the strict scrutiny standard to such infringements. The government must come up with a compelling purpose to justify that infringement. Under the First Amendment, few government purposes are considered compelling enough to curb speech. But Justice Scalia wasn't buying this argument based on the specific language of the ordinance. If St. Paul wants to protect safety by banning fighting words, why limit the ban to only certain kinds of fighting words?
3: Well, I suppose you, you, uh, the the other major area of uh, speech that we have called non-speech, I guess it's just a matter of analysis, but we've called obscenity, uh, not speech, not protected by the First Amendment. Now, I I assume that uh, it would be bad, would it not, to have an ordinance that says you cannot use obscene photographs to advertise, uh, um, I don't know, the, the Republican Party. You, you may not use obscenity for the following purposes, and then picking very content-based purposes for advertising Republican Party. This this cause, the other cause, that would be bad, wouldn't it? Even though you're dealing with unprotected speech. Yes. If you want to, if yes, you want right. to prohibit obscenity, prohibit obscenity. So it's the same here. If you want to prohibit uh, fighting words, prohibit fighting words. But why why pick only if you use fighting words for these uh, these uh, particular uh, purposes—race, color, creed, religion, or gender? What about
5: other fighting words? I think the. Uh The city has has an absolute right and purpose to try to regulate the harm that goes on to its citizens, and certainly this bias-motivated conduct and violence is uh, much more harmful and has more harmful impacts to its citizens. It's a political
3: judgment. I mean, you you may feel strongest about race, color, creed, religion, or gender. Somebody else may feel strongest about philosophy, about economic uh, uh, philosophy, about uh, whatever. Uh, you, you've picked out five uh, five reasons for for causing somebody to breach the peace, but there are a lot of other ones. What, what's your basis for making that uh, right. subjective uh, discrimination,
5: Your Honor? The city of the city of St. Paul is is attempting to uh, fashion responses to uh, violence that uh, that it uh, deems necessary to prohibit, and uh, and will add uh, additional uh, harms to be regulated as as it finds them under this particular ordinance. It's, it's deemed that this is a particular harm going on that is necessary within the city of St. Paul to prohibit and regulate.
3: It doesn't have to add anything. It could just drop the words, that you know, just say that arouses anger, alarm, or resentment in others. Period. Or, or shall be guilty of a misdemeanor. It didn't have to say arouses uh, anger, alarm, or resentment on the basis of race, color, creed, religion, or gender. You don't need that for Chaplinsky. If it's a fighting word, it's a fighting word. They could get the cross burning. They could get all sorts of activities.
5: Your Honor, I, I think as um, it's the... Uh, city's position that this is a fighting words case, that the ordinance has been sufficiently narrowed by uh, by the Minnesota Supreme Court, and you could reread that ordinance under these facts to say that whoever, based on race, places an object or symbol with the intent to inflict injury, incite immediate violence, or provoke imminent lawless action is, is guilty of a crime. And I think that the, the Minnesota Supreme Court's narrowing of that ordinance is sufficient to uh, to uphold its constitutionality under the Chaplinsky and Brandenburg holdings of
0: this court. Justice David Souter, often far to the left of Justice Scalia's perspective in most civil rights cases, appeared to share his colleagues' misgivings. Cases like Chaplinsky and its progeny had taken fighting words as a whole. If the government is to ban and punish insults and threats that spark a fight between two people, it must do so across the board. A fighting word is a fighting word, no matter what its particular subject matter may be. Wouldn't St. Paul's argument change this legal precedent? Foley did not directly answer Justice Souter's question on this topic. He simply said that RAV's conduct, burning a cross on the yard of the Jones family, qualified as fighting words. No justice disagreed with that, though. The problem was that the language of the St. Paul Ordinance and its prohibition of certain fighting words was based on their content. After several minutes of questioning on other topics, Justice Souter tried again to get a responsive answer.
4: Going back to your earlier answer, if I understand it, <clears throat> with respect to the with <clears> the <throat> with respect to the infliction of injury point your your theory is that because the category of words that inflict injury are outside First Amendment protection, it is not an objection in this case that the particular uh, words or expression that inflict injury, are identified by means of content. Is, is that a fair statement of your position?
5: We think they, they can be content based under those circumstances. For the
0: reasons I just... Yes. Okay, okay. Foley then shifted to a policy argument. St. Paul was right to prohibit certain fighting words, or words that inflict injury on the basis of racial, religious, and sexual bias, because they are worse than other harmful words. And though cross burning on someone else's front yard could already be prosecuted as trespass or arson, those prohibitions simply weren't sufficient considering the nature of racial hatred. Justice Scalia was not convinced.
5: I think it's uh, important to look at bias-motivated violence, which is significantly more harmful on the impact than similar criminal conduct not similarly motivated. The burning of the cross in the African-American family is not the equivalent of a simple trespass or minor arson, either to the targeted victims or to the community in which it occurred.
3: Well, you say bias-motivated, but it depends on what your biases are. If, if, if a, a family with a, with a mentally deficient child should move into the neighborhood, or if there should be established in the neighborhood a, a home for, for, for the mentally ill, and someone should burn a cross with, uh, uh, on, on the lawn of that home or institution with a sign that says mentally ill out, that would not be covered by this ordinance, isn't that correct?
5: I, I don't believe under the facts that you described that it would. Um,
3: it's it's the wrong kind of bias. It's, it's, uh, it's not it's at not least until they come around to a- adding, which may well be the next one, uh, gender, uh, religion, gender, or, 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 or uh, a disability, until they come around to adding that, it's the wrong kind of bias, and therefore you can't... Uh,
5: it's probably not addressed under this particular ordinance. There are other alternative... Uh, criminal laws that may apply to that particular situation. But
3: why is that? I mean, if you're concerned about uh, breaches of the public peace, if it's a fighting words problem, why why is it okay for the state to to have the the, the, the public pre, uh, peace broken uh, for that reason? It's only these other reasons that they're worried about. Why why is that? That, that seems to me like the rankest kind of uh, of subject matter
5: discrimination. Well, there there are many reasons that uh, uh, cities and state legislatures look to a particular wrong that they're attempting to address, and I don't think they address all of those wrongs at the same time, and they attempt to, uh, to get as many as the, of them as they can, and they do address in a, in a content-based, uh, under certain circumstances, certain harms that they want to address. And including well, It, wasn't, it wasn't
3: hard. It wasn't hard to write this in, in such a way that it wouldn't discriminate in that fashion.
5: They just had to drop
3: out on the basis of race, color, creed, religion, or gender. Those are the only things that
5: they seem to be concerned about. I I think the Minnesota Supreme Court uh, addressed uh, or made reference to that issue when it said that the particular city ordinance could have been uh, drawn uh, a little bit better, but then went on to clearly narrow the the impact of that ordinance and, and narrowed it only to apply to fighting words. And in the context of the facts of this case, the burning of the cross, the historical context of a burning cross in the middle of the night is a precursor to violence
0: and hatred in this country. It may be a mistake to perceive Justice Scalia's line of questioning as tone-deafness about racial bigotry. It was not that St. Paul couldn't ban the kind of heinous activity that RAV engaged in. Fighting words and threats, in general, already could be banned. The issue was how the government did it, and under the First Amendment, the process matters as much as the outcome. The First Amendment requires the government to be neutral toward the content and viewpoints of individual speech. It cannot play favorites. It cannot declare that some topics are off-limits and others are not. It can ban certain whole categories, such as fighting words and obscenity, but it has to do it neutrally. So though Mr. Foley was right that racial bigotry and fighting words have a unique and terrible historical context in America, the First Amendment still does not allow the government to single out racist speech and expression for punishment, just as it can't single out other forms of unpopular or undesirable speech, like blasphemy or sedition. As his time ran out, Foley answered a few more questions from Justice Byron White about the scope of the state Supreme Court's ruling below, and then Foley sat down. Edward Cleary returned to the lectern for a brief rebuttal. He noted that there was another, more general Minnesota law that also prohibited RAV's conduct, and thus there was no need for St. Paul to single out racist speech for special prosecution under their ordinance. This greatly piqued the interest of the justices. More importantly, perhaps, since Mr. Foley spends a lot of
2: time talking about the terroristic uh, factual allegations here, There were other more serious laws available that did make this kind of a political statement. This is not a question about whether anyone here approves of this alleged conduct. There were tough ways of dealing with it, but without implicating the First Amendment.
3: Excuse me, are you saying there was another General Beach of the Peace Ordinance that could have covered this? A General Beach of the Peace Ordinance that would have covered
2: fighting words? SLJ was was nearly construed by the Minnesota Court to read just fighting words without any subgroups or any of the rest of this language.
3: So then then you could say the municipality's law as a whole did did not discriminate on the basis of... uh, Subject matter. I mean, under this particular ordinance, you can only get certain types of, uh, of fighting words, but you're saying under another ordinance,
2: you could get the rest. I'm saying on What's the other ed- ordinance, the other ordinance would implicate the First Amendment, but not in terms of the viewpoint neutrality, not in terms of the under Do we
6: have that other ordinance? That's, that's a statute, it's not an
2: It's cited in the briefs, Your Honor. Were there differences in penalties under one or the other? No. They're exactly the same. They're both misdemeanors. Well, which but it wasn't, the, wasn't the, uh, in SLJ, wasn't it a statute, not an ordinance? Excuse me, it was a statute. The penalty was the same, however. They're both 90 days uh, maximum.
6: So. And, and where is the citation? Will you furnish it later so Certainly. you don't use up your last Certainly not. minute?
0: Indeed, Minnesota state law already prohibited terroristic threats, arson, and vandalism, regardless of the motivation, racially hateful or not. His argument concluded, Cleary left the podium, and the parties awaited a decision from the court. That decision came on June 22, 1992. In a 9-0 ruling, the court struck down the St. Paul Ordinance. But the reasoning for doing so was not unanimous. A majority of five justices ruled that the ordinance was unconstitutional because it prohibited speech based on its content. In other words, on the basis of the subjects it addressed. Justice Scalia wrote the majority opinion.
1: The opinion of the court in number 907675, RAV versus St. Paul, Minnesota, will be announced by Justice Scalia. Just about two years ago, in the pre-dawn hours of June 21st, 1990, the petitioner RAV, a juvenile, and several other teenagers, allegedly assembled a crudely made cross by taping together broken chair legs. They then allegedly burned the cross inside the fenced yard of a black family that lived across the street from the house where Petitioner was staying. Although this conduct could have been punished under any of a number of laws carrying significant penalties, one of the two provisions under which the Respondent City of St. Paul chose to charge Petitioner was the St. Paul Bias Motivated Crime Ordinance which prohibits the display of a symbol which one knows or has reason to know, quote, arouses anger, alarm, or resentment in others on the basis of race, color, creed, religion, or gender. We conclude that the ordinance is facially unconstitutional because it prohibits speech on the basis of the subjects the speech addresses. The First Amendment generally prohibits government from proscribing speech or even expressive conduct, because of disapproval of the ideas expressed. There are, however, a few limited categories of speech, such as obscenity, defamation, and fighting words, that have traditionally been subject to regulation on the basis of content. Although we have sometimes said in our cases that these categories of expression are quote, not within the area of constitutionally protected speech, close quote, all that such statements mean is that these areas of speech can, consistently with the First Amendment, be regulated because of their constitutionally proscribable content, that is, because of their obscenity, defamation, etc. Not, it does not mean that they are categories of speech entirely invisible to the Constitution, so that they may may be made the vehicles for content discrimination unrelated to their distinctively proscribable content. Thus, the government may not regulate fighting words based on hostility or favoritism towards a protected message that the fighting words contain, just as a uh, City Council, for example, could not prohibit only that obscenity which criticizes the City Council. In light of these principles, we conclude that the ordinance, even as narrowly construed by the State Supreme Court, is facially unconstitutional because it imposes special prohibitions on those speakers who express views on the disfavored subjects of race, color, creed, religion, or gender. Moreover, in its practical operation, the ordinance goes beyond mere content discrimination to actual viewpoint discrimination, fighting words that do not themselves invoke race, color, creed, religion, or gender, aspersions upon a a person's mother, for example, would seemingly be usable ad libidum in the placards of those arguing in favor of racial, color, etc., tolerance, and equality, but could not be used by that speaker's opponent's St. Paul's expressed desire to communicate to minority groups that it does not condone the group hatred of bias-motivated speech does not justify selectively silencing speech based on its content. Let there be no mistake about this Court's belief that burning a cross in someone's front yard is reprehensible, but St. Paul has sufficient means at, at its disposal to prevent such behavior without adding the First Amendment to the fire. We, therefore, reverse the judgment of the Minnesota Supreme Court."
0: Scalia's majority opinion was joined by Chief Justice William Rehnquist and Justices Anthony Kennedy, David Souter, and Clarence Thomas. Justice Byron White wrote a concurring opinion, agreeing with the result of the case, but differing on the rationale. White didn't agree that the St. Paul Ordinance was unconstitutional because it was not content neutral in banning some fighting words over others. White felt the ordinance was overbroad. It prohibited some speech that didn't amount to fighting words at all, and that went too far. As White explained, overbreath was the actual argument RAV made in the case. And whether or not the ordinance was overbroad was the question the court itself had agreed to resolve when it took the case in the first place. Content neutrality for fighting words was not the question before the court. In White's view, the ordinance would actually survive a facial attack based on the majority's reasoning because the ordinance only applied to a category of speech that was outside the protection of the First Amendment. And at any rate, it was motivated by a compelling government purpose, the special punishment of biased fighting words that create a real risk of racial or religious violence. But, White said, The problem with the ordinance was that it also criminalized speech that merely hurt people's feelings. And that went too far. Speech that hurts feelings or causes offense is not the same as fighting words. Fighting words cause actual physical harm or a real danger of it, Thus, the use of the word fighting. Justice Harry Blackman wrote a separate opinion agreeing with Justice White's overbreath conclusion, but also criticizing the majority opinion written by Justice Scalia. Quote, I see no First Amendment values that are compromised by a law that prohibits hoodlums from driving minorities out of their homes by burning crosses on their lawns, but I see great harm in preventing the people of St. Paul from specifically punishing the race-based fighting words that so prejudice their community. Justice John Paul Stevens also agreed with most of Justice White's overbreath analysis, but also wrote separately to criticize the majority's reasoning on this basis. It makes no sense to say the government must ban all fighting words or none at all, or that the government must regulate all speech in a particular category or ignore it entirely. If the government can single out certain categories for prescription, such as fighting words, then the government is well within its power to declare that some fighting words are worse than others. And Stevens noted, True content neutrality is impossible. Even the categories of speech that are totally outside the First Amendment, such as obscenity or fighting words, are assessed to be outside that protection by first determining their content. If the government were truly held to a content-neutral standard, no categories of speech would fall outside the First Amendment's protections because the government wouldn't be allowed to discriminate on the basis of content at all. According to Stevens, the majority's doctrine of content neutrality was thus a highly selective one. All these thoughtful criticisms aside, Justice Scalia's majority opinion in R.A.V. v. St. Paul carried the day. But R.A.V. v. St. Paul did not settle forever the legal debate about whether hate speech should be excluded from free speech protection. Law professors, such as Jeremy Waldron of New York University, argue that hate speech has a unique amount of power due to our history of slavery and subjugation in this country. And despite this history, the United States stands mostly alone compared to its peer countries when it comes to restricting hate speech. Since we already carve exceptions to the First Amendment, adding another exception, in a very carefully defined way, would not be a total departure from our constitutional tradition. On the other hand, legal critics of hate speech restrictions point out that even if you define hate speech to include only certain narrow categories of insult, it is not in our constitutional tradition to restrict speech simply because it hurts people's feelings. The First Amendment, after all, was designed to protect unpopular expressions, the very kinds of speech that get people riled up and angry. As attorney William Kunstler said in an interview after the oral argument in Texas v. Johnson in 1989, I think it's a hard nut to swallow, but it's the kind of nut that the founding fathers wanted us to swallow. Because they said that it's the hard words, not the soft words, that need protection. And critics also point out that an exception for hate speech could be prone to abuse. Government officials could expand the definition of hate speech to serve their own ends. They could define sedition as hate speech, for example. Meanwhile, the debate rages in the public sphere as well, fueled by protest movements like Black Lives Matter and the recent reemergence of white supremacist groups like the Ku Klux Klan and others. A recent Pew poll found that 40% of people between the ages of 18 and 34 now support restrictions on speech containing hateful content, quote, offensive to minority groups. Support for such restrictions is below 30% in all other age groups. Cable news conservatives mock and belittle advocates for hate speech restrictions for being fragile crybabies, supposedly offended by everything. For now at least, if state and local governments want to prohibit hate speech, they have to do it carefully. If they want to prohibit biased forms of expression that amount to threats or fighting words, they can't single out certain kinds based on their content alone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Heightened Scrutiny. You can support this podcast by visiting its website, scrutinypod.com by liking it on Facebook, by following it on Twitter, and by subscribing to it via iTunes, Google Play, and other podcast services. You can also support Heightened Scrutiny financially. Heightened Scrutiny has launched the campaign through Patreon. You have the option to donate on a recurring monthly basis any amount you choose to help keep Heightened Scrutiny going. If you enjoyed this podcast and wanted to keep getting better, please consider donating. Please check out patreon.com slash scrutinypod for more information. Again, I hope you enjoyed this episode and we will keep tuning in.